My name is Jeff Galvin. I'm a partner at the Downey Brand Law Firm based in Sacramento and the editor of Trust on Trial, a blog on California trust and estate litigation. Many trust and estate litigation disputes involve step-parents. Quite often, an elder marries a much younger person. The elder's children, if they find out about the marriage, worry that the spouse is out purely for financial gain. But when is a marriage truly predatory? And how do we balance respect for the right to marry with the protection of vulnerable elders? Today we'll explore the subject of predatory marriage with Ellen McKissick, a lawyer who has immersed herself in the subject. Ellen litigates trust and estate cases at Hopkins and Carley, a law firm based in San Jose. Ellen, welcome to Trust Me. Thanks, Jeff. You know, before we get to the topic, I'd like to chat a bit about a group of lawyers known as Texcom. You've been a member of this group since 2013, and you were the chair last year. Can you tell us what Texcom is and what it does? Sure. Um, Texcom is the executive committee of the trust and estate section of the California Lawyers Association. The section has about 7,000 members, and it is governed by an executive committee, which is comprised of about 35 volunteer attorneys. TexCom assists in the development of the law in the field of trusts and estates. We put on seminars and we publish a law journal called The Quarterly. I hope many of our listeners have heard of. This is to keep members of our section on top of the legal developments. TexCom also reviews all legislation, all legislation that goes through the legislature to make sure we catch everything that deals with our field and we comment or promote or sometimes oppose some of that legislation. And finally, Texcom sometimes proposes its own legislation. Yeah, you know, I'm on Texcom. This is my second year, and this past year I had some fun tracking and providing comments on an assembly bill that was passed. So it is a wonderful way to engage with the legislative process. I understand that applications for Texcom will be due on March 1st, about a month after this podcast airs. What's your pitch to California lawyers in our audience who might be interested in joining Texcom? Well, Texcom has been the most rewarding experience I've ever had during my career, and I hope you're having a great time, Jeff. You're exposed to really intelligent people with experience in fields that you may not have had the time to delve into really deeply. And Texcom is it's so collegial. The friendships that I've developed that I think everyone on the committee develops are long-lasting and some of the best I've ever had. It's just been a wonderful experience. Yeah, the people are friendly, and I'm hoping that some of their intelligence will rub off on me. So what's the application process? We are hoping that um, California Lawyers Association will have already had the applications out before the airing of this podcast, and then they'll be due March 1st. If you're interested in applying, you can just keep checking the CLA website, or you can send an email to the Trusts and Estates email group in order to be put on a list, and we'll send you an application. And that is trustsandestates at callawyers.org. Can that be in the show notes, Jeff? Of course. Fantastic. Let's turn today, then, to our subject predatory marriage. 
You've written a couple of articles on this for Trust in Estates Quarterly, right? Yes, I have. The first one was in 2008, and it focused on the use of confidential marriage licenses to take advantage of elders. The second one was in 2016, and it focused on using marriages to circumvent the prohibited transferee and elder abuse statutes. And I understand that you have a very interesting case that you can describe for us today that kind of got you going on this topic. I sure do. Back in 2006, I handled a case for two clients from Norway. Uh, They were two women. Their uncle, Thor Tollefsen, lived in the Bay Area. Thor was 85 years old. He had never had any children. He was very lonely. He had emphysema. He was dying of cancer. He slept in a hospital bed in his home. I believe that he had scabs all over his feet, and he could not read without a magnifying glass. Not the most attractive man to marry. But Thor went to an estate planning attorney in about 2002. And this female estate planning attorney learned about his assets and also knew that his family was in Norway. Little did she know that the two nieces were airline stewardesses, and they came over and visited Uncle Thor all the time. They were very close to their uncle. But anyway, this estate planning attorney got Thor to transfer $300,000 in investment accounts into a joint tenancy account with her. This was before marrying him. And then she married Thor using a confidential marriage license. I think one of the interesting things was that the nieces were actually visiting Thor. And the estate planning attorney came over and swept him off somewhere. And we found out later she'd swept him off to the San Francisco County Clerk's Office in order to marry him using a confidential marriage license. And the nieces never knew about it. There was one problem. The confidential marriage license that this estate planning attorney used to marry Thor required that she swear under penalty of perjury on the license that they had been holding themselves out as husband and wife, i.e. they'd been living together. And the problem was they never lived together before the marriage, and they never lived together after the marriage either. The estate planning attorney had a 16-year-old daughter, so she didn't want the daughter to know that she had married an 85-year-old man when she was only 54. She also explained that she had a lot of cats, and if she moved in with Thor into his home, her cats would become feral, and she couldn't let that happen. Thor still had his mental capacity, so when he realized he'd kind of been taken, he called his nieces, asked for help, and he filed for a divorce. After he filed for a divorce, the estate planning attorney finally decided to move in with him. Well, Thor actually moved out into a care facility because he didn't want to live with her. She brought him back on a weekend, and somehow the gas got left on in the fireplace, and Thor died. Well, that is an amazing story. So what did you do? Well, my clients called from Norway. They found out their uncle had passed away, and all of a sudden they found out there was some ex parte movement in the court system. Turned out the estate planning attorney had filed to become an omitted spouse. I appeared on behalf of the two nieces. 
ultimately we brought a motion for summary judgment and we were able to get the confidential marriage voided, which we can discuss later. It's a very difficult thing to do. Then the estate planning attorney appealed that summary judgment. It was upheld on appeal. Um, and then the state bar brought some actions against the attorney, and she was ultimately disbarred. Wow, that's quite a saga. Ellen, I had an interesting case as well where my client's elderly father, after becoming widowed, met a younger woman who painted the name on the back of his boat. And soon enough, they were in a relationship They got married. There was litigation later about the nature of that marriage and what had unfolded. And at the end of the day, there was a settlement of the case, and she got the boat. What did they paint on the back of the boat? In pro per is what she, the new name for the boat, which means that she was litigating for herself. She actually did have a lawyer, but she decided to name her boat in proper. Well, so let's step back from that and approach the question more broadly. How can marriage be used to perpetrate financial elder abuse? What have you seen? Well, I think that if you look at the definition of financial elder abuse, most simplistically, it's simply taking the property of an elder knowing that it's likely to harm the elder. And that's what you're seeing here. Um, When someone marries an elder, they likely have access to all of their accounts, all of their codes and passwords. And as the court found in a case that we know as Lintz v. Lintz, a new spouse commits elder abuse by overspending the elder's separate property. The wrong kind of marriage can lead to financial elder abuse. But that's the big question, isn't it? What's the wrong kind of marriage? Well, we've always had people who marry for money. Um, We had the May-December weddings, but some of those marriages last for decades and and the people really truly care about each other. What I'm talking about is when you have people in a confidential relationship with the elder who take advantage of the elder when they're dependent and lonely just to get their money. You see this especially with caregivers. It also happens with people who are not caregivers. But the wrong kind of marriage to me is when you have someone who's in a confidential relationship, such as an estate planning attorney or a caregiver. Some of these people are very wise to our statutes, and they marry because it's easy to get around those statutes. When you talk about caregiver, you're talking about someone who's coming into the elder's home to provide personal care services, usually for payment? Yes, and it's defined in the code. They call them care custodians in the code. I refer to them as caregivers. So how did the legislature begin to take on this problem? In 1993, the legislature passed the prohibited transferee statute, which is now probate code section 21380. And that statute creates a presumption of fraud or undue influence against a caregiver that receives something under an instrument that was created during the time of the caregiving or within 20 days of completing the caregiving. The problem is the caregivers figured this out and they also learned that marrying the elder was an easy way around that statute. And how does that work? When you look at marrying, 
the mental capacity to marry is very low. It's the lowest of low. It is lower than the mental capacity needed to create a will. All you need to know in order to get married are the obligations of marriage. And what does that mean? Nothing in the law really defines that. Some people say it means having children or having um, sexual relations. Others say it is supporting someone with money. But there's really nothing that truly defines it. Then, if you marry the elder who has a, it doesn't require much mental capacity, these caregivers knew that they would become an omitted spouse or that they would be able to then change the elder's will and they'd no longer be a prohibited transferee because they were now a spouse. Another thing that makes it much easier to marry the elder is it's so hard to get a divorce. Divorce is a very personal right and the elder is the only person that can decide they want the divorce, except for the spouse, of course. A conservator is not allowed to file for divorce for an elder. Really? Yes, really. I know that many people have known conservators that can seek to annul a marriage and claim it is void, but that's for lack of consent. If the elder consents to the marriage, even if the elder didn't consent at the time they got married, but then they change their mind and they think, well, I'm really happy, and then they consent, conservator cannot file for divorce on behalf of the elder. I've even seen cases, Jeff, where the elder had filed for divorce and then, for example, got in a car accident, no longer was mentally competent, conservator is appointed, and the courts say, sorry, they're not able to state that they still want a divorce, so you cannot get the divorce for them. It's a very personal right. And I've heard that some courts sometimes will grant conservatorship solely for the purpose of preventing an elder from getting married when there's a family member who's concerned about that, which is interesting. I've heard that too. And I think that another reason they may do that is once the elder marries, if you seek a conservatorship, the spouse has priority to be that conservator. That makes it even more difficult. And one other point I'd like to make is that after death, it's much harder to challenge the marriage. You think it's difficult during life? It's much harder after death because you can only challenge a marriage for being void, not voidable. And what we mean by that is that the marriage never existed in the first place, that it is void because of bigamy or incest. And typically in our instances with elders, it's only because they failed to obtain the proper marriage license. You can't challenge it based on fraud or lack of mental capacity after they die. We have some good stories here, but how widespread is this problem? No one really knows. I don't know of any organization that tracks it. And um, mainly, I just hear about it from fellow litigators. And I, I think you and I both have stories, but there are many, many stories from many litigators about this happening. Well, we've talked about the problems of predatory marriage, but let's get to the right to marry. My concerns about elder financial abuse stand in the way of happiness through late in life marriage. Actually, I think it's exactly the opposite. The right to marry is powerful, and it's so basic in our society, at least in California, that marriage stands in the way of protecting the elders from financial elder abuse. 
The hardest part of this area of the law is balancing the interests of the elder. An elder has the right to be happy and have companionship. And so what you're trying to balance here is the right of this elder to their happiness versus the greedy children that are upset that their inheritance is being spent by the new spouse. What about solutions? I know you've considered a variety of legislative solutions and looked for consensus amongst trust and estate lawyers. Can you describe your journey there? Well, it was a very, very long journey. I think what helped most was I became a member of Texcom and I had a a platform where I could at least get a few people to listen. It started by me giving a seminar at the state bar for Texcom because Texcom puts on seminars at the bar association meetings. And when I gave that seminar, there were a few people who were sitting on Texcom with me who heard it and they became really interested. But it was not an easy road to hoe. We started a subcommittee on Texcom. We called it the Marriage Subcommittee. It lasted for six years. We started with a really broad goal of trying to perhaps end confidential marriages, to perhaps prevent elders from getting married with such a low mental capacity. But it was hard to build consensus. Uh, The litigators tended to have one opinion because they saw the problems, whereas estate planners were more connected with the actual individuals who perhaps wanted to marry. And it took a long time to build consensus. Um, We had to cut down what we wanted to do. We had to really scale it back, but we finally did reach a consensus. And I guess my feeling is I just wanted to get my foot in the door and try to get something started in this area. Well, let's talk about the bill then that ultimately passed the legislature in 2019 and just took effect in January of 2020. It's Assembly Bill 328. So how did this bill change California law? Well, first I want to point out it was a work of many people for six years. And What we did was we scaled back what we wanted to do, and it applies really only to caregivers or care custodians, as we refer to it in the particular statutes. AB 328 amends probate code sections 21380, 21382, and 21611. So first, we'll talk about the prohibited transferee statutes, which are 21380 and 21382. What we did there is we created a presumption of undue influence or fraud, not just where someone is a care custodian, which is already in the statute, but where that care custodian commenced a marriage, cohabitation, or domestic partnership with the elder while they were providing service or within 90 days of the services being last provided. You can see this tracks the original verbiage of the statute. If the instrument was executed less than six months after the marriage, cohabitation or domestic partnership, then this presumption arises. You can see we kept the time limits pretty narrow and that was part of reaching consensus for this law. We also then had to amend 21382 just to make sure that the two statutes were consistent because 21382 of the probate code is the section that creates an exception for spouses. 
and we didn't want a care custodian to claim, well, now I'm a spouse, there's an exception. So you'll see there was an amendment to 21382 to make sure that our amendments to 21380 were incorporated. And what about the omitted spouse problem? The prohibited transferee statutes deal with testamentary instruments. So if the care custodian is smart enough to realize, I don't want to go that route, they'll just lay low and claim I'm an omitted spouse. So we had to go amend 21611 of the probate code in order to close that loophole. I think what you'll see and what I feel is that this statute's a little bit more harsh than what we did with regard to the prohibited transferee statute. This particular statute now says that unless the care custodian can prove by clear and convincing evidence that the marriage was not the product of fraud or undue influence, then the care custodian will not receive an omitted spouse's share at all. If... The care custodian married the elder while rendering services or within 90 days after providing the services, and the decedent died less than six months after the marriage commenced. The thought there is that there are some marriages that are genuine and last a long time, and so we don't want to say that there cannot be an omitted spouse when there's a long-term marriage. So you see their time limits, again, are, are rather on the short side. But this at least will apply to the deathbed marriages, and that was a goal that we were were working towards. Maybe as time goes on, if the problem persists, we'll be able to get uh, the time limits increased, but at least we have our foot in the door here. Yeah, I've noticed as these statutes sit on the books, they tend to get more protective of people who are perceived as vulnerable, so it'll be interesting to see what the statute looks like a decade or two from now. I agree. Ellen, if you had a magic wand... And I hear they're trying to make those in Silicon Valley, your neighborhood. How would you change California law to further address this problem of predatory marriage? Well, I think I still personally would like to go back to confidential marriages and see if there's anything we can do in that field, but I know it's difficult. But I've also heard of laws in France Don't ask me what they are, but I've heard that in France, people who marry late in life after a certain age uh, do not automatically share in the estate with the new spouse. They, They just marry for companionship. And I wish that's the way our statutes were. Uh, There's no automatic right to assets. You can always create an estate plan afterwards. And they don't have omitted spouse and intestate succession. So I guess if I could wave a magic wand, I would hope that marriage could be for love, not money. And what's wrong with that? By the way, you know, one easy solution here is just to move to France. It's another reason to move to France, right? That sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Why not? Well, thank you, Ellen, for your work in this area. It's been great to have a chat with you today. I appreciate your sharing your thoughts. If folks want to reach out to you, how could they connect with you by email? My email is my first initial and last name, E. McKissock, E-M-C-K-I-S-S-O-C-K, at hopkinscarly.com. And folks can reach me, Jeff Galvin, at jgalvin, G-A-L-V-I-N, at downybrand.com. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org. 
click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the trusts and estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.